So good to be with you this morning. I trust that your heart is encouraged, even as we gather around the Lord's table. The Lord is preaching to us. He is a God full of mercy and grace. I, I hope that your heart responds with faith, even to the table of the Lord. That your faith is encouraged and strengthened, and that your joy is strong because of the Lord's saving favor. Open your Bibles with me, uh, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2. In somewhat of the finalization of his prologue, the Holy Spirit is setting the stage for the rescue of Israel from Egypt. And finally, we have Israel turning to God in prayer, turning to God out of desperate need, asking for help. And so let me just recall to your attention that in chapter 1, we saw the rise of a Pharaoh and an Egypt in opposition both to God's plan and people, that Pharaoh decides to oppress God's people, to commit genocide, to keep them weak. And despite all of that opposition, God prospers his people. And then in chapter 2, we have the beginning of a, an agent that God has designed to be his instrument of redemption, Moses. And he, a helpless babe, was rescued by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. Again, I think the Holy Spirit showing us the powerlessness of the most powerful agent against him. You know, Pharaoh, his own household, will not submit to. His own daughter saves a Hebrew girl, or excuse me, a Hebrew boy. And so a Hebrew, uh, an Egyptian girl rescues a Hebrew boy, and it's Pharaoh's own daughter who does so. Moses then, sensing God's hand, Acts makes clear that he believes God is going to use him to rescue Israel. And so he begins to uh, join Israel in, chapter, in verse 11, and he commits murder, and he kills this Egyptian, and then flees to the deserts of Midian. And as he's in those deserts, 40 years, we then come to verse 23. So now Moses is an 80-year-old. He's not mentioned in this verse, which means Israel's bondage and slavery and oppression has now gone on nearing a century. This has been no small oppression. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's a, it's a poignant little section of just three verses where the Holy Spirit reminds us again and again in this text of a cardinal truth to the Christian faith. Our God is merciful. and Our God is full of mercy to those who need it. And perhaps you're sitting here today and you're wondering, well, who needs mercy? Well, if you're wondering that, let me just tell you point blank, you do. And if you don't know how much you need mercy, this text preaches mercy again and again to us. It's not uncommon for 
people within our culture to understand or to misunderstand how much they need mercy. I was just meditating as I was preparing for uh, this sermon, thinking about even just the simple fact that this week I have spent four days with a fever and I cannot shake the dumb thing. And for half of that time, I can't even think. It's like, I'm home, and I'm not able to be productive. And all that's going on with me is some little microscopic virus or bacteria, some stupid thing, and it breaks you down and teaches you you are helpless. I mean, I I know it's nothing, or it's a common cultural joke, but grown men turn into six-year-olds if they get a fever. It's not untrue. My wife wants to remind me of that all the time as well. But in more serious levels, like we have many law enforcement officers in our church. It is a common struggle for suicide and depression for law enforcement. And these are men that represent both power and dignity, and yet internally they're breaking down unable to face the constant onslaught of being on the front lines of facing evil and seeing it just wreck our community. It's not uncommon. Drug use. And even just the silent struggle of a mother at home who feels like a failure, who quietly wonders if she is succeeding at raising her children and perhaps maybe putting too much on her shoulders, she wonders if her children's salvation is going to be lost because of her. Physical weaknesses, sicknesses, diseases, cancers, even just the chaos on our roads reminds us we are helpless. I don't know if you've ever experienced the joy of driving in Bakersfield and stopping at a red light and seeing a car blow by you through that red light. And it feels like in moments like those, if your pulse is like mine, it's reminding you that that could have been a moment of death. And the Lord is kind, and we are still alive. Financial pressures, the inability, I mean, I think every parent feels this inability to reach into your child's soul and fix them. And I don't mean like to make them pay, I mean to make them right, to make them love Christ, to make them follow after the Savior. Um, The terrifying thought that you're going to send your child away and you can't secure their safety. And your child is going to probably love some bum more than you. And while you know that that's a good thing, it reminds you how helpless you are. We know these things intuitively, but we want to look in the mirror and tell ourselves that we can face this world and its trials and its struggles and that we, we can handle it. As Christians, as those who read our Bibles, we are the most foolish of people to think so. When you look at this text, I would just point out to you that this text is God beginning to strongly preach his name. When you go to Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus 34, the first attributes he mentions, and he he changes the order. So in chapter 33, when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I will show you my glory and I will proclaim it to you. And he says, I will have grace on whom I will have grace. And I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And then in chapter 34, 
he shelters Moses and allows Moses to see his back, the, the, the backside of his glory, so to speak. And he proclaims his name, and there he takes mercy and puts it in the front position and says, I am a God full of mercy. So when God declares his name at the end of this discourse of who he is, in fact, he vocalizes for Moses, I am a God of mercy and grace. Moses was not startled by that message. That message had been preached in the activity of a God who saves and of a God of mercy. My theology professor describes mercy as a transitive expression of God's love. And by that, what he means is that God's love acts towards those who are in miserable and pitiable and sorrowful conditions. Love acts, and when it does, mercy is the way we describe it, acting towards those who are helpless and hurting, those who are in need, those who are impoverished. That's what, that's what mercy is. It's an expression of God's care and pity and kindness upon those who are helpless. And so we start in this text and consider this. Everyone in this text is helpless except God. Look at verse 23 again with me. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. The Holy Spirit is making two things clear in this text on the outset. First, the king of Egypt being the pharaoh, he has died. That's significant in terms of the, the flow of Moses' life because this is the king that pursued him to death. He's now been himself brought to the grave. And later, God will say, all that are seeking your, your death, your life, Moses, all of them are dead. And so you can return safely back to Egypt. And so, of course, in the narrative, this opens the door for Moses' mission to resume, for him to return to Egypt safely. But here, this regime change, this new king, does not actually bring a change for Israel. And so this is the this sad indictment against this new pharaoh. The old pharaoh died. Well, what is Israel? Do they get released from oppression? They're in a new regime and a new king, and he brings in a new order. And what does he do? He continues the same prejudicial, genocidal attack against God's people. Look at what it says. It says, in those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because why? They're still slaves. And so even though this regime change has happened, there's still this recognition that God's people are being oppressed. They're still, being un they're still under the hand of an evil king, although it's a new king. Now, I just suggest to you just as a point I think is being made in this text, so far in the whole book of Exodus, all two chapters we've covered so far, there have been two deaths, and not one Jew has died. Only Egyptians have died. The one oppressing a Jewish man that Moses killed, and now the Pharaoh, the king who's been trying to kill the Jews, he dies. But in all the oppression listed in chapter 1 and 2, God never tells us that a Jewish person died. And that doesn't mean they don't need mercy, but I would just suggest to you that God is telling us that the Egyptians need mercy and are not pursuing God for it. And something of a hint in terms of the Pharaoh's death is a reminder that all those who need mercy and don't pursue God 
don't get it. He enters the grave. But Egypt is crying out to God, or excuse me, Israel's crying out to God. In fact, there's, there's four ways it describes this, and I think it's worth noting at least. Uh, these many days the king of Egypt died, and you'll notice that Israel groans, that they're suffering. There's actually four different Hebrew words, and our, our English translations just don't do a good job of highlighting it. It's really difficult to do sometimes in the work of translation. But that first word, groaned, and then you have they cried out. And then again, they cry, totally different word. And then in verse 24, they're groaning. Now, here's why this is probably significant in terms of just the outline of the text, because then God responds with a fourfold response to their fourfold suffering. It is no surprise then that as the New Testament preaches, us to, preaches to us who God is, that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that God is the God who is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And if you just consider that for a moment and, and bring it back to this text in terms of theological unity of the Scriptures, Israel has finally gotten to the place where they're asking for help. Now, they've been under bondage, like bondage bondage, for 80-plus years. And they're finally asking for help. In some ways, Israel is nothing more than a national expression of the guy who cannot put together a project using instructions. And after failing and after beating his head into the wall and after being frustrated and after putting it together wrong and seeing that it doesn't work, he finally pulls out the instructions and does what they say. Of course, he has to disassemble the wrongly assembled thing first before assembling it correctly with the instructions. And it's as though Israel finally turns to God because it's the first time we have corporate prayer. And I don't mean corporate prayer as though we all pray together, but during these many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groan. The people of Israel cry out. And it's finally the people doing this. It's not just a righteous man saving his son Moses with his wife as they build this ark and put him in the Nile. This is now the whole people expressing and pleading out to God, we need help. Again, if we're just thinking through um, logical structure, I think, I think the scriptures show us very clearly that we all need mercy. That we all need mercy. This is not, this is not surprising to the Christian. And scripture makes it clear then that there is one place we go to mercy. And so I just suggest to you that implicitly in the text, it's telling us that we must seek it. We must seek mercy. The people of Israel groaned. They groaned because they're slaves. They cry for help. And their cry comes up to God, which is certainly a euphemism for prayer. And maybe, maybe you're looking at a text like this, and like me, you're wondering, how in the world do you not pray for 80 years of oppression? And again, assuming that some few people did, I don't think we should assume the worst of the whole nation. But what would cause you not to pray? I don't know, perhaps you're a very distracted, busy person. You know, maybe when life goes wrong, you plan, you strategize, you figure it out. Your car starts making weird noises, and you check your bank account balance instead of praying. 
you start to feel a little bit sick, and you figure you're going to muscle through it, you're going you're to take some multivitamins, and you're just going to act like you're not sick because the power of the mind is strong enough to overcome whatever you think is coming. Perhaps you think your suffering is your fault, that merely if you just change your behavior, your suffering will stop. But there can also be super spiritual, and I mean by that some false spirituality in our answers. Perhaps you might just assume, because God already knows, that our prayer is somewhat inconsequential and unimportant. I mean, it's not as though any of you should think that when you're suffering, God is surprised by that. Perhaps you think God is sovereign. And he has put me in this path of suffering by his design, and therefore I should just joyfully walk in this suffering, and you fail to pray for rescue from it. Perhaps because you know that God's plan is good and you're confident of his love, you fail to pray. In this text, and it is certainly consequential in this sense, God answers their prayer. And so, you see, you have this people that's been oppressed. They are slaves. And finally, after decades upon decades of suffering, they finally pray. And you should notice God's response. Look in, look in verse uh, 23 again. They pray. They cry out. We come to verse 24. And Scripture points out, and, and these are fairly truncated statements. They're very short, and they all have God as their subject. So it's not as though, like, like the ESV is adding the word God in there. I think some translations actually might take it out just, just for smoothness, and they shouldn't. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. So here you have Israel. They're crying and groaning because they're suffering. And we have this repetition of, of, four, of four words for the Hebrews as they're suffering and praying and crying out to God. And then you have God responding, maybe some way in, you could say in kind. And initially we have God heard. Now again, these words are not to inform us that God is all-knowing or all-present. It's not as though Moses is saying, hey, God is the God who has ears. That's not the point. Any, any more than a child who's disobedient might be asked by their parents, can you hear me? Because the assumption is if the child can hear, the child would do what? Obey. And in fact, you see that euphemism in Scripture. Often hearing is equal to obedience. And that would be the point here, is that for God to hear is actually for God to hear and act. That is, hear and respond to what he has heard it says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this becomes somewhat thematic as you consider all the rest of Scripture. That is that God is a God who doesn't just make promises. He is a promise-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. In fact, that's the whole point of covenants, isn't it? A covenant is a binding agreement between parties. And so God has made a covenant with Abraham. And then with Isaac, he restates the covenant. And then with Jacob, he restates the covenant. And forever after this opening salvo of covenants in Genesis, it's almost never the Abrahamic covenant singular. It's almost always the, the covenant that God made with Abraham and our fathers. 
or the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's never just like that was that covenant. It's always a covenant with binding and continual expectation upon God. So for God to remember his covenant is not for God as though he's some geriatric in heaven who can't remember going, oh, yeah, that. It's that God is acting upon already given promises in line with that covenant that he gave before with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for instance, you you would have again and again God reminding Israel that he's going to remember. For instance, Leviticus 26. Let me read this for you. Leviticus 26.41. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, let me just qualify that line for you. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that's hard against God in unbelief. So it says if their hard heart of unbelief is humbled, this is Leviticus 26.41, and they make amends for their iniquity, so they repent and humble themselves, then I will remember my covenant. This is not a promise that God will recall it. It's a promise that God will act in loving favor in line with the covenant when his people repent and turn back to him. Or Psalm 106, for their sake, the psalmist records, he remembered his covenant and relented. That is, God, God remembering his covenant is him being faithful to his covenant as his people need it. It is God to act. It is God to do what his covenant promises. So he promised in Genesis 12, that he would bless those who bless Abraham and those who dishonor him would be cursed. I remind you, there's only two people who die in chapters one and two, and they're Egyptians. They're Egyptians who set their hearts against Israel and hurt Abraham and his offspring, and they die. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham in that covenantal context, you recall that where Abraham is, he's actually in a sleep, and God speaks in that sleep as he stands between these animals and that, and that cloudy pillar between those animals. Do you recall that in Genesis 15? I know I'm going back like six sermons, and that's like six too many. So in that covenant, God says, Abraham, your descendants will be in a foreign land, sojourners for 400 years. And, and they will be oppressed. And I will bring them out. Well, here we are about 400 years into their, their sojourn in Egypt. And God is going to do what? He's going to remember his covenant. That is his covenant with Abraham in which he stipulated, hey, even though they're going to be sojourners for 400 years, my covenant is still viable, and this is actually part of my design. He said this to Abraham way before Joseph was sold as a slave, and they went to Egypt. And so when he says, I'm remembering my covenant, it's not as though their prayers to heaven have surprised God, reminded him of the covenant, and now he acts. What is actually happening is exactly what happens when we pray is that God is using prayer as a means by which he's accomplishing that which he already planned to do. This is excuse me, a significant theological point I think we need to understand about prayer. 
God is honored by answering the prayer. But in doing so, he's not doing something he did not intend. So when someone says, well, why pray, for instance, like, why pray for the salvation of my uncle? He's going to get saved if it's God's plan. And if it's not God's plan, he's not going to get saved. So why would I worry about it? Well, consider this. God has already said, I will bring them out. They will be sojourners in this land. They will be oppressed, but I will bring them out. And now we have their prayer being the trigger that leads to God's act of mercy of rescue. Prayer was the means by which God was pleased to answer and mercifully save his people as he intended. It is both an answer to prayer and exactly what he planned. And I would say it this way, prayer is the means by which God accomplishes purposes. So his purposes have been accomplished by means of prayer. Did he truly answer prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talk about God being sovereign and God having a plan, it is not as though your prayers have somehow thrown a kink in his agenda and now he's got to change his plan. It is that your prayers are part of his plan as well and help accomplish his purposes. That being said, God is pleased and honored to answer prayers. As we consider this text of Scripture, God doesn't simply hear. He doesn't simply remember his covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Again, there, there is so much theological freight being carried in just these few phrases, isn't there? God, God being omniscient sees it all. But that's not the point. The point is, is God is, God is co connected with and imminent with his people so that his suffering is something with which he is personally familiar. I mean, we, we all know that the word know in Scripture carries more significance than just intellectual facts. Um, it is often used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. It is used for close friendships. To know somebody speaks of personal relationship and personal knowledge, not merely just factual knowledge. So when God says he knows what's going on with Israel, he is not merely claiming that he knows about what's going on. In fact, just as a theology of knowledge, go back with me to verse uh, 8 of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not what? No, he doesn't know Joseph. And what type of behavior does this lead him to? Absolutely wretched behavior. Right, he ends up, he ends up starting, pushing over the dominoes that leads to the oppression, the subjugation, the brutal treatment, probably murder of many, because he doesn't know Joseph. When you come to chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. The lack of knowledge of God led Pharaoh to a certain course of action. How did that go for him? Not knowing or knowing is a significant theological point that Exodus is making for us. When Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph and when he doesn't know God, it leads to all sorts of wretched behavior. 
treating people evilly and putting himself in opposition to God and being ruined by God because he doesn't know God. Further, if you were to go down to chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh will not listen to you, God says. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's a hard way to learn and have a personal experience with God, isn't it? Here, in chapter 2, God knows. There's great comfort in that for those of us who are believers. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 7, as we enter into that scene with that burning bush, the Lord says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. You can, you can confidently enter into God's presence and prayer to me, God's presence by prayer. With that same thought in mind, God sees my affliction. He hears my prayers. And he knows my suffering. And can you imagine if God didn't? How hopeless prayer would be. I mean, I, I have a hard time when my five-year-old is trying to tell me a story about school on like multiple levels. First, I can't literally understand half the words he says. Then these stories are so challenging to understand because they're not like linear. You know, it's not like the story begins here and ends here. We'll often start at the end, then we'll get a beginning and end, a middle, a beginning, and an end, a middle, and somewhere in there, there's something else going on. And I'm like, I don't understand. And usually it takes an eight-year-old to interpret for me. <laughs> Can you imagine if you had to go to God in prayer and inform him? If, in fact, he didn't know, and you've got to bring him up to speed. Can you imagine if you were to go to God in prayer and with deep burdens, unknown by any other human, you had to express to God how desperately you needed his rescue before he would be moved to action. Can you imagine having to go to God in prayer and communicate to him how deeply you need him to move before you were confident he actually cared to move? You see, God is preaching to us, not merely that we should pray, but the confidence with which we should enter into prayer. That he is a God who sees. He is a God who hears. He is a God who remembers. He is a God who knows. Because a God of mercy must be that, or mercy is dispensed erratically. It is dispensed without goodness and wisdom. Because it must have knowledge to be done well. God's mercy, therefore, comes to Israel not because they are prayers, but because God is merciful. The great hope of the Christian faith is precisely what this text shares with us. That you and I desperately need mercy. You never don't. You always need mercy. 
There's never been a day in your life where you have woken up on your own. And that's not just a slight about your laziness. I mean, you really haven't. God wakes you every day at dawn to meet his day that he made for you to glorify him. Every day he wakes you. You have electrical impulses that work together as rational thoughts most of the time, most of the time only because God is sustaining you. You have ever and only done anything in this life worth good that God praise because of him. You have never had an original thought that was good. Any original thought with you is bad. Because that is what scripture says, that always every impulse of our heart is corrupted by our heart. And so like a kid who's broken a pen and everything they touch is dirtied by the ink of their fingers, Everything of our heart is evil unless God graciously, through the ministry of his spirit, work in us that which is good. And so when we look at a text like this, and we see that both Israel oppressed under the mighty hand of Egypt and Egypt powerless to stop the march of the grave, we're both desperately in need of mercy. We are told this simple truth. And throughout Scripture, it is repeated on almost every page, you and I need mercy. We are pitiable, we are weak, we are framed to need God. And only the arrogance of the human heart can deny what is staring at the face every day we wake up. We need God. Not merely do we need God, Stephen Charnock in his, his book on the existence and attributes of God makes this um, description. I think it's helpful, so let me unpack it a little bit and read a quote for you. God's mercy is not like the sun. The sun always shines and shines in all directions. It is not a personal being that chooses to shine on some and not others. God's goodness is not required of him. And here's what I mean by this. God does not need to be good to you. It's not as though the sun up in the sky decides that today is not a favorable day for you. He will not shine on you. The sun makes no decisions. It is not self-conscious. It just shines. I do think in our world there is a theology that God's goodness shines on all. And I mean by that saving goodness and his mercy and his grace. And it leaves men and women... not urgent and not concerned that they plead for mercy. I think many in the world are on their way to a Christless eternity and they presume that the God who is gracious, like the sun shining on them, will always shine his grace on them. And this is not true. God is free this text shows us he's free. How long had Israel been suffering? Was God compelled to be gracious to them? I mean, the first time that Pharaoh decided, you know what, I'm going to turn my, my guns on Israel and I'm going to oppress them, enslave them, and I'm going to start killing their boys. Was God compelled 
by that threat and that oppression to jump in with mercy? Absolutely not. I am sure babies died. I am sure men were beaten to death in the slave camps of Egypt. I am sure that there are people who were miserable and died early because they were overworked, they were undernourished, and they were just oppressed into the grave. And God did not need to rescue them. God was not compelled by his own grace to be gracious to them. And so we have this declaration that you might have missed the freedom of in Exodus 33. I will be merciful to whom? To whom I will be merciful. The one contingency on God's mercy is God's own decision. It's not you. You are not so glorious and beautiful that God says, I have got to have that person. They need my mercy. They get it. No. God's mercy is freely given. And the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In this passage, we finally see Israel humbling themselves under God and calling out for help. And the book of Exodus lays it like a trigger that unleashes the Father's mercy on Israel because they finally prayed for mercy. They groaned and they cried out to God. Here's what Stephen Charnock says, the goodness of the deity is infinite and circumscribed by no limits. But the exercise of his goodness may be limited by himself. God is necessarily good in his nature but free in his communication of it. He is not necessarily communicative of his goodness, that was communicative of his goodness, as the sun is of its light, which chooses not its object, but enlightens all indifferently. This were to make God of no more understanding than the sun, which shines not where it pleases, but where it must. He is, on an, un, he is an understanding agent and has a sovereign right to choose his own subjects. It would not be a supreme if it were not a voluntary goodness. In other words, God's goodness is supreme because it is voluntary and infinite. Let me just encourage you with this text then. Here our God is described as both imminent, that is he comes and, and interacts with his people in such a place where he can say he knows their suffering, he hears their cries, he sees their injury, he, he hears and remembers his covenant. Because he's preaching to us, he is present. And he is moved by the suffering of his people. And he is a God of all mercy and all comfort. There is no place you can go for mercy outside of God. This being the case then, can I just ask you a few questions? Why is prayer so often neglected? Why is our need so often ignored. I think many of us want to see the salvation of our children, and so maybe we pray regularly for them. But there are so many unspoken prayers that James would say something like this, you have not because you 
You ask not. As we conclude our considerations of God's mercy, can I just take you to 1 Peter chapter 5 and just point out to you maybe the antithesis of this text? When you look in 1 Peter chapter 5, as he's concluding, there is no doubt that the people that he is writing to have suffered. In fact, he says your many trials as though necessary in chapter 1, that these trials are necessary trials. Look at verse verse 6 with me, 1 Peter 5. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he does what? Because he cares. Now, the way those texts are tied together is that the way we humble ourselves, and then you have this participle phrase in verse 7, we humble ourselves by doing something. By doing what? By casting our cares. So perhaps one of the reasons that we actually don't plead for mercy is because we are not humble or we are, we're proud. And you go back and you read Exodus 1 and 2 and the, and, and the distinct lack of a call for God to rescue until the end of chapter 2 is startling when you think about it. How many decades of slavery and oppression would you have to go to before you would think, I should pray? You wouldn't think very many. And you'd think for a nation that at least has an oral history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God's kindness to these patriarchs, that their initial thought would be, hey, we want that God that was so kind to Abraham and rescued him out of Egypt. We want that God that brought him out of that land of Ur. We want that God that rescued Abraham and Lot from the the kings that had captured Lot. We want that God to do some work because we're in trouble. Maybe we don't ask God to save us. I'm thinking more generally of all humanity because we're too proud to admit that we are not our saviors. Can I just appeal to any of you who have yet to turn to God and trust in him and humble yourself that salvation and grace require you to come to God and ask in faith. And not that asking saves you. It's God saves you. Because you turn from self, you turn from your own hope, and you turn to God as the only hope. This is the saving grace God promises to all who believe in him. And the fact is, if First Peter nails it here, and I'm pretty sure God knows what he's talking about in chapter six, or excuse me, verses six and seven, the reason God's people are often prayerless is we don't understand how much we need his care and we think we've got it covered. So can I encourage you, church family, 
Saints of God, you know you need God for salvation, but you also need him for daily support. You need him for rescue in the middle of a hard test in school. You need him for rescue just responding well to a spouse who's irritable. You need him for rescue for everything. It is only by God's mercy you will wake up tomorrow. It is only by God's mercy that you will be able to withstand the next year and a half of presidential clamor. It is only by God's mercy that you respond graciously to coworkers who try to suck you into political debates just to fight you. It is only by God's mercy that you'll face tomorrow with joy and hope. It is only by God's mercy that you'll see God rescue your children from hell and sin. It is only by God's mercy that you'll stand by the graveside of a loved one with hope rather than despair. It is only by God's mercy that you are saved. And God's mercy, like this, unlike the sun, may not shine on you without you humbling yourself and asking for it, turning to God in faith. And when Israel finally does, God not only rescues them, he preaches to them that he is a God who is merciful. He doesn't just say it. He does it. Again, mercy is a transitive expression. That is, it's God's love in action. And God loves his people who call on his name and walk in humble faith before him. My confidence is that as God works his word, as God ministers through his word, as the spirit speaks in our hearts, that we will respond to our great God by trust. Are you walking in trust and a merciful God today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, you are a God who speaks and communicates to us that we might be responding with faith toward you and a faithlessness towards ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would turn our church heart to be so committed and devoted to trusting in you rather than ourselves, that the evidence would be an outcome that is seen by many. Homes filled with the sweet sound of prayer. Hearts devoted to trusting in you. Lives living in a loving affection to their Savior who is merciful to them. And so even now we ask, God, comfort our hearts prove to be the God of all mercy and comfort. Show us so that our hearts might be strong in faith, that our hearts might turn from trusting in ourselves, and that we too might walk in the path of Israel, who under suffering called out to the God who is merciful and kind. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the way you minister to us through Christ. We ask that today, that any who might have a false confidence in their own resources, their own goodness, their own abilities, that you might turn them to Christ, that they might receive mercy. Lord, forgive us for pride. Help us to see the total bankruptcy of trusting in our own weak flesh, our own corrupted hearts, 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust in Christ alone. Lord, help us to walk in a way that pleases you. That all our thoughts, that all our intentions and motives would be strengthened to be Christ-centered. That we might be walking by faith, that we might be walking in love, and thereby Christ might be honored by his people who are being shaped to love him and live lives fully pleasing to him in all their ways. In Jesus' name, amen.